This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Kia ora. Welcome to Bookings with Maren Rush and Ruth Todd. And Maren, this week I'm non-fiction. So am I. I'm talking to Joanne Drayton about her fascinating new memoir um, called The Queen's Wife. Looking forward to that, reading that. And um, I'm talking uh, quite a different book, a book by a very good Christchurch researcher, and it's called Fear, F-E-A-R. Byron C. Clark is one of Aotearoa's New Zealand's foremost experts on the far-right and ultra-right extremism. He is also an independent video essayist, disinformation researcher and commentator, and he usually lives in Christchurch, but not at the moment. So welcome to the programme, Byron. Hi, thanks for having me. This um, book, Fear, F-E-A-R, I was absolutely intrigued with it, and I realised I was fairly complacent towards the beginning. You you um, start the book in 2019, don't you, and lead it up to after the Muslim massacre and then lead up to um, the parliamentary and, um, when they when these out, you call them out, um, right, when these extremists landed in Parliament together, and there were mm. lots of lots of different strands to that meeting, weren't there? Yes, yeah. So, so what I aimed to do with the book was sort of look at how we got to that point, how we got to this three-week-long protest outside Parliament. Who were the groups who were participating in that? Who were the influencers on social media who were pushing people towards that? And what was the disinformation and the ideology that was coming through um, both from people producing it locally and from some of these overseas sources? Well, many many of these beliefs um, really originated on the more disreputable parts of the internet, but they gained, Mm. gained an audience on mainstream social media thanks to algorithms and designed to keep eyes on screens, which pulled people into this world. And I don't think I realized the depth of it I certainly didn't really wake up properly till they arrived in, par- in Parliament grounds. Yeah, and I, I think that's the case for for a lot of people. Um, this was happening on online, and you know, people may have had a friend or a relative who, you know, would occasionally say something a bit off about <laughs> some sort of conspiracy theory, but perhaps didn't realise just how how much this had been growing the last few years and. And like you say, the social media algorithms are are a big part of it. Uh, the algorithms designed to keep people watching or reading on a particular website for as long as possible, you know, to serve them more advertising, uh, would tend to give people, you know, more and more um, emotive content that you know made them, you know, feel strongly and want to keep reading, and and that um, in turn ended up promoting a lot of uh, misinformation, disinformation, and and a lot of quite hateful ideology in some cases. Indeed. And you dedicated the book to um, the people in the world, or asking that um, people in the world, in the, what are the exact words, to everyone working for a world without hate. Mm. How is that going to come around? 
to being in this climate? Mm. It's a big question. I think um, there's no no one single solution uh, for this problem that we're facing, but there's lots of things that people can do that can be can be part of the solution. Um, so some of it might just be helping somebody who you have a relationship who's gone down one of these conspiracy theory rabbit holes, helping them get out of that. I talk a bit in the book about how people are usually not going to be convinced just by somebody who has the correct information. They're going to be convinced by the strength of the relationship they have with the person telling them that information. So I think that's a a really important part of it. Um, I've also talked about um, how a lot of these, particularly the really apocalyptic-style conspiracy theories, um, which QAnon is an example of, tend to happen at times of significant social, technological, and economic change, like seen the last few years with the pandemic and like we're going to see in the coming years with climate change. So I think um, working on issues around climate change, around wealth inequality, which is another significant factor, can also play a part in that solution. That would take quite a... um, You would have to use your skills in, um, I suppose, no, non, not being angry with people, but trying to go from where they are now and, mm. uh, and as you say, how good your relationship is with the people you know, mm. because they're, yeah. they're fairly convinced, aren't they? Uh, the, I have two in my family, extended family, okay. and, uh, you know, I gave up, I guess, because I thought, oh, this will just pass. But with one of them, it isn't passing. Um, so, it, you know, um, I'm getting old. I'm not sure how much energy I can put into it now. But um, it, you make me fearful um, of it being there and being sort of underground, really, isn't it, at the moment? It is still quite underground, yeah, because people can, people can get into these spaces um, largely online and other people in their life might not even realise that they're that they're getting into this. And a lot of this happened, of course, during the pandemic. And part of the reason for that was that during the lockdown, especially people people were in their homes, they weren't connecting with their wider community and social network, and they were spending a lot more time online. And then they could form these or join join these existing sort of virtual communities that have sprung up around these conspiracy theories. And I think for some people this is this has become their new social network, their new community. And yeah, it makes it very difficult for for some of those people to come out of that because it's not just about, you know, what they believe, it's also about the relationships they have in that in that community, which have probably been strengthened by participating in things like the Parliament protest. Indeed. And would also um, how they're doing now. They still they they really failed that time. It was twenty three days though that it took to mm. um, close it down, and terrible damage and fires and mm. violence um, coming out of it. So, do you see anything like that happening again? Is that possible? Because the, I think it. I I think it's certainly possible. Um, There does seem to be a little bit of a lull at the moment in terms of some of this activity. I think the the end of some of the COVID public health response, uh, like you know vaccine mandates and lockdowns, and I think that's taken a little bit of wind out of the sails. Uh, But a point I make in the book is that 
what we've seen with uh, the pandemic is really just a, a dress rehearsal for the kind of disruption we'll see as we start to see the effects of, of climate change. That's going to be very disruptive um, to our society, and I think some people are going to respond to that You know, with going into these conspiracy theory rabbit holes. We're already seeing a little bit of that um, just with the cyclone happening um, recently, and you know, there's misinformation and disinformation spreading online in a lot of those same spaces that were spreading misinformation about the COVID vaccine. So I think there's a there's a real risk of um, of this kind of movement growing again um, in in reaction to uh, the effects of climate change and also policies that might come about to mitigate climate change, which they might see as you know part of a nefarious global conspiracy, the same way they saw the COVID vaccine, vaccine or the other COVID public health response. So they, it doesn't really matter which party is in Parliament um, running the country, they, they're going mm. to be anti the government anyway, aren't they? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, there was a, you know, a particular uh, hatred of Ardern um, while she was Prime Minister, and I think a lot of that was rooted in, in misogyny and, and um, ideology like that. But for, for most of the people in these spaces, they see they see all mainstream uh, politicians as you know part of this global conspiracy. I, I saw a um, photograph on one of the social media groups that I follow for for this sort of content, and it was a, a banner that had been painted that showed both uh, Christopher Luxon and Chris Hipkins as if they were marionettes being puppeted by the head of the World Economic Forum, and it was sort of claiming that you know both parties are just puppets of these more powerful, nefarious global elites. So I certainly think that um, a change in prime minister or a change in which party is in government isn't, isn't going to be enough to um, mitigate this. I thought, in my naivety, I thought that having um, the cyclone might show them that um, climate change is here now and we have to do something drastic about it. So I mm. thought that might have helped our cause um, for more you know, interest in what's mm. happening to people. Um, but you're saying no. Well, hopefully for, for some people it has. Um, there, there are others who uh, may believe that climate change is real and it's happening, uh, but believe that it's being used by nefarious elites to reshape the world economy. You see a lot of conspiracy theories about you know, UN Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030, which are um, just plans for you know, more, more sustainable cities and, and you know, quite uh, 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 things that I think are quite positive, um, but are seen as part of this big conspiracy. So you get a bit of that even among the people who may believe that climate change is actually happening. They feel that this sinister group of global elites are using it um, as a way to further their own interests, which was a similar thing to what they believed about um, about the COVID pandemic. And then there are others, um, you know, that further detach from reality who spread conspiracy theories that, you know, the cyclone wasn't caused by climate change, but instead was, you know, weather modification or geoengineering or, or something like this. And, and again, it ties back to that same conspiracy theory that, a nefarious group of global elites are doing this to forward it, forward their own interests. So within that conspiracy, you get people who think, you know, it's, it's manufactured and it's and it's artificial, and you get people who think it's real, but it's being taken advantage of, and they end up 
um, promoting the same sorts of things, even if they don't fully agree on on the facts. So you um, you state the names of the um, groups in your book who came together yeah. in Parliament and other groups and names. Um, so how do you think this is going to affect you? Because I'm worried about you. Or are you going to publish another book? Because this one is so good to read and so almost fearful to read. But it's mm. um, also um, so valuable for people mm. to read it and discuss it. And that's what I hope will happen. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I wrote the book because I, I really felt there there was a need for something like this, for people to mm. have something, particularly something accessible, because there is a lot of great research being done in academia right now, and I've spoken to a couple of academics, you know, for the book, um, but um, a lot of that isn't... Um, that accessible if you're not someone from an academic background or uh, you know studying at a university. So I wanted to write a popular book that would um, br- uh, show people you know who these groups are, what they believe, what's happening. Um, whether I'll write another one, I think um, it'll depend on whether I see a need for for a follow up, and quite possibly with uh, with the climate change. Um, pivot that we're seeing in this conspiracy theorist scene, um, there, there may, be, may be a need for that. I mean, that's certainly a topic I'd like to continue to look at, whether, whether or not the result of that is a book or whether it's something else. I've been talking to Byron C. Clark. He's written Fear, F-E-A-R, New Zealand's Hostile Underworld of Extremists, and it's published by HarperCollins. Thanks very much, Byron. Thank you. That'll go out probably not this next week, but the week after, I'll let HarperCollins know to let you know, and then it goes on to podcast. It's broadcast Wonderful. on the um, on bookends, uh, which goes round the place, and um, um, that's on a Tuesday. And then after that, it's always on podcast, and oh, yes. you can get it on bookends. Um, podcast is on plainsfm.org.nz. I'll okay, and I'll, um, I'll, you know, I'll certainly try to commend it to so many people. Um, oh, wonderful! Yeah. So all bookshops will have it now. Yeah, it should be. It should be almost everywhere now. Yes. There was a few delays with the cyclone when it first came out, but um, it should be everywhere now. Good. Thank you yeah. for writing it. Thank, thank you for reading it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And look after you. Yeah. Will do. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. The Queen's Wife by Joanne Drayton is described as a modern love story. Whakapapa, archaeology, art and heartbreak. Joanne is somebody I have read read uh, her books uh, I've talked with her just about almost um, about almost all of her work um, Edith Collier, Rona Hazard, Frances Hodgkins Anne Perry, Nio Marsh and Hudson and Halls she's won awards, fellowships and renowned for her work but this time the story is her own Welcome, Joe. It's an ambitious book, really, isn't it? Oh, kia ora. Uh, thank you for having me. It, it was an ambitious... It, well, it is an ambitious book. Um, when I say was, I've already written it, I suppose, in some ways it's in the past. But 
Um, of course, the response to it is now and in the present, very much in the present. And yeah, well, it was a challenging book for, for, the, for the fact that it was very personal, that it sort of explored a time in my life that I, you know, had some discomfort of, about real discomforts and sadness. But also, I hoped, you know, some, some of the joys and the fun and the, the, the laughter. But, but also, I challenged the, the, the form of uh, the memoir by, um, I think, weaving two other stories through the, through the arc of the, the, the main memoir. So, although um, uh, that sounds a little bit complicated, uh, I think it works reasonably straightforwardly and I think it hopefully takes people on an engaging read that's beyond just a memoir and into the imagination and experiences and past history of both my partner Sue and I. Well, let's talk about um, the title, The Queen's Wife, and and why you've used um, the chess analogy in in the book. It's it it makes perfect sense when you read it because chess is a really intricate and strategic game um, that you never quite know the outcome of, and that relates very much to your story, doesn't it? Yes, uh, I, I chose the Queen's Wife actually. The metaphor for, for chess was a long-standing one. Uh, the title sort of came more as, as a moment in the cafe when I suddenly thought, I know, I know that I know what I'm going to call this book. But the, but the metaphor for, for chess started with with me in a way being so intrigued and starting to carve a set, uh, an actual set in bone of, of chess pieces, responding to the Lewis chess pieces, and uh, and. Then taking that and realising that as I changed from from carving lines to writing lines, that, that, that the metaphor held right through, because uh, you know some of what I'm looking at um, in the in the memoir, particularly the memoir arc, is the story of um, you know uh, custody battle, the battle for children, the battle for m- my partner, two queens, two women to stay on the board together at a time when there was a lot of prejudice and resistance to same-sex relationships and particularly same-sex relationships in relation to parenting. So um, so it seems a small way back in time, but it's a, it's a sort of almost an ice age uh, back in terms of um, looking at how people have changed, how ideas have changed, how we've grown much more expansively and seeing uh, relationships as as not male and female or, you know, the old heterosexual sort of um, scenario always, that, that, that love can be love and love can parent in all sorts of ways. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think um, for, for me the, the metaphor worked for the pieces in the world and worked for the book on the page. So we probably should talk a little about those Lewis um, chess pieces that set you off in exploring their history and what it rela- how it relates to you and then your desire to recreate them and take it beyond just a, 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 a you know a straightforward recreation of them. 
Yes, you could you could actually get a resin copy of the Lewis chess pieces because they're so um, remarkably, you know, famous almost. Well, totally famous. Um, but I, I wanted to, in some, I believe that that's my tribe. That I belong to. Uh, I did the Twenty Three and Me DNA, and I belong to that Northern European, uh, Scandinavian uh, genetic line, Paul, if you like. So that was my tribe, and my sense, my my cultural uh, Maori side, the side, the side that I think has kind of been embedded in me growing up in New Zealand, is to value the treasures of your ancestors, and I felt that that my that those those treasures weren't available to me, and it was really creating them and bone carving them was it was like drawing back my ancestors, my treasures, actually so that I could possess them, so that I could cherish them, and maybe so that I can pass them on to, to my children, to, you know, to generations to come. And I, I, I wanted to reclaim those treasures for myself, and I, I felt that, that, that the time that it takes to make them is something that connects you to the subject matter, connects you to the objects and the, and the history. And so in carving them, it was like bringing them alive. And, and then I had that desire, because not, not just the object tells a story, but there is a story around those objects. They generated a story. And it is absolutely fascinating. And I, I wrote that story on the way to work in a little pad on my hand, in the palm of my hand, because I was so captivated by, by the story of these Lewis chess pieces that were discovered uh, in in 1831, but in actual fact, had they sort of rolled out of a sandbank, basically in a, in, a, in a kind of container, and they but they believed that they had been put there in, in, in the um, Middle Ages, so um, they go right back and and maybe had been there for six or seven hundred years. So I just had to tell that story, but it's not one story; it's a number of stories because there isn't a definitive absolute sense of of, um, of exactly what happened. It's a mystery and I love mysteries. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, and it links into the other story um, that you're telling of Sue's whakapapa. Um, so, you know, we don't have much time left, but tell me about how that came into the story as well. Well, it, it was a search for her family and her whakapapa Mine was treasures, hers was for the lineage that she uh, began to uncover that was started by one of her relations earlier, Terry Kendall, uh, and um, also followed, uh, he was leaving, uh, he, he got his information uh, from Gavin and Russell Bishop. So, you know, uh, so we, it was really a matter of looking to find those connections through right back to Te Whiro Whiro, who is um, Sue's great-great-great-grandfather. So it was a search uh, into royalty and um, into kingship and to chieftain, uh, the chiefs of, of a great age, uh, the sort of last totally untouched age in a way by the coming of Pākehā and colonisation. So, although there's a merging there, um, I, I just, it was just something, a story that's so important to tell and so important to Sue to tell uh, that 
that I, cu- I couldn't leave it out and it, it, and it balanced mine. It, it gave, it was like one move and then a counter move and so each of us moved through and placed our piece on the board a little bit of more of our story. One uncovers treasures, one the other uncovers a family lineage and a history and a proud history of, Māori, of connections to Māori. Yes, it certainly, you know, gives the book some, you know, other dimensions. I have to, I have to say though, um, you know, your joie de vivre and your uh, <laughs> and and your ability to sort of keep going under pressure comes through enormously in this book. And there's some great and very funny stories. And just to finish, the story I loved was you climbing a tower in Alexandria in Egypt to try and work out whether Rona Hazard fell. Or jumped. <laughs> I don't think she was necessarily pushed, but you know, there was there. Yeah. There are you putting yourself totally at risk. Yeah. And, you know, I I had sort of tingly, tingly, um, <laughs> tingly soles of my feet as you described going up that precarious piece of you know building. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of my life has been fairly precarious and. In some ways, the precarious moments, the ones that terrify you at the time, are often the ones you look back and sort of laugh at or you're either a gobsmacked or amazed. You know, it's, um, it is those moments that make up a life, that make a life interesting to other people because they have their own moments, their own jeopardies and their own humour and fun and laughter. And so it's, it's where that... It is where, we, where you connect, I think, with the reader. And uh, it's a sharing, isn't it? I think writing is a sharing. I love it. And I, I love the idea that I'm talking to someone and sharing my life and hoping that in some way they find their own or aspects of their own reflected back. It's going to be a very inspirational book, I think, for um, you know uh, members of the queer community mm. in looking at... Um, how you two managed your way through it, and you know we can, we can, you know you can be proud that um, you've made it and things have changed, and that yeah. you've been able to, um, you know, capture some of the history of that time. Mm. Mm. In a way, sort of surviving is, is, is agency in itself, and the story then goes on to affirm other people and other uh, other women who are in same-sex relationships, but the whole wider queer community who are all impacted in various ways, even now, with, the, with those choices, with those love relationships, with those passions. And, you know, so I think it's, if, if, it, if it adds to the to the story, to the canon, if it adds to, if it even supports a few people and their, their choices and gives them a sense of worth, self-worth, then I've achieved as much as I ever hoped to. Well, you know, time will tell, but I think we could confidently say you've done that. <laughs> I just want to finish by inviting people who are listening to come and hear Jo talk about her book. She's going to launch it at UBS out on the um, Canterbury University of Canterbury campus on, I think it's Wednesday, isn't it? The 15th yes. of March yeah. at 5.30. And um, of course you can buy the book. So 
let's hope we have a good gang of locals turn up to um, celebrate this book with you, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Great. The book is called The Queen's Wife. It's a memoir of a turbulent time and a chess game that broke all the rules. It's by Joanne Drayton and it's published by Penguin Random House. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.